0: Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Bible teacher Gary Thomas and was recorded on Sunday, July 30th, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or eleven AM and come say hi in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at Faithbridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every
1: Sunday for our online service called Faithbridge Live at Faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Gary. So um, before I introduce um, our Preacher of the day, I want to read to you the text that we're up to. We're taking this journey, if you're new, through the book of Acts this year in 2023. So we're up to uh, the end of chapter 15, where Duffy got us last week, and an interesting thing happens, and it has to do with conflict. And so let me read it to you from Acts 15, starting in 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back. And visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord. And let's see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take John Mark. Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And he'd not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement between the two of them. That Paul and Barnabas parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul took Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It's an interesting passage because what you have is two people who love God very much, Paul and Barnabas. You have Barnabas who was always for the underdog who had helped Paul come into the faith, you'll remember from some weeks ago. And Barnabas has this relative, we think was a cousin, I believe it was, that uh, is John Mark. But John Mark had cut and run on the first missionary journey. And so as they're getting ready for the second missionary journey, um, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. And Paul says, nope, we tried him once and not going that way. And they just couldn't get on the same page. Now that's an interesting thing because we, as followers of Christ, we we all love God, and what? How do we deal with the conflict? When you, well, it, it, the problem with the text is it never really gives us. Luke doesn't really say here's who was right and who was wrong. You could say well Paul was right because the brothers uh, of the church they blessed Paul. And Silas, as they left, left, commended by the brothers. So the church saw it. There, But on the other hand, John Mark does make good. And he'll leave us the gospel of, John, of Mark. And we know from Timothy that even Paul comes around and he sees, yeah, Mark's not such a bad guy. So what do we do? Well, Romans 12 says, as far as it is from us to the other person, let, us, let, let there be peace with us. Sometimes, though, you're going to part ways. Now, here's an interesting thing and in, in why um, I've asked uh, for what's going to happen to happen today. I think that there's gradations of uh, conflict. I, could, could these two have gotten on the same? They probably could have gotten on the same page. But they chose not to. And in God's great plan, there was two missionary journeys that went out. So more ministry happened. And like I said, it all comes around in the end. And they, uh, they, they live happily ever some, some time later. But is that always the way it's supposed to be? Or are there some levels of conflict where there's such toxicity that really you do need to walk away? Gary Thomas is a friend of Faithbridge, has been for 20 years. He came on my radar about that length of time ago when I heard about his uh, landmark book that was called uh, that uh, is called Sacred Parenting. It still ranks in the top five best Christian books on, uh, I, I should have said Sacred Marriage, that was the first one. It ranks in the top five of, of Christian marriage books consistently, even today. He did then write Sacred Parenting. That's also uh, been a phenomenal book and helped us so many Christians all around the world. He's spoken all around the world, and he's been a friend of FaithBridge for all of these years, even most recently in our restructure, agreeing to become one of our pastoral elders. He serves on a church staff in uh, Denver called Cherry Creek. He's a, a preaching pastor and author in residence, he's a prolific writer. And, um, and since he wrote this book, When to Walk Away, and I saw this text, and I was like, okay, maybe they shouldn't have walked away. Maybe they should have worked this out. But are there times, and how does a Christian deal with, how, how do you know the difference when really there is a time you need to walk away? To this end, I asked Gary, would you come and teach us about this? Because this is something that we Christians don't hear much about. And he's got a great word for us. Let's welcome Gary Thomas back to FaithBridge. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. Well,
0: thank you. It's great to be back. It's been a great relationship. I think I have a relationship with FaithBridge longer than maybe any church in the country. And so when Ken talked about the oversight, I was honored to do it just because I, I believe in your pastor um, and my wife, mine, Lisa, and Suzanne, we've done life together. And it it was an honor to do that. And I love it because Ken's so strong where I'm so weak. He's got leadership skills off the chart. And so I finally went to my hairstylist and said, make me have a haircut just like Ken. (laughs) And uh, try to get a little more that way. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would open up your word to us. This might be a paradigm shifting time for some of us. So I pray your spirit would guide us to do it wisely, appropriately in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife may be one of the healthiest eaters in the world, and I mean that. And she'd been after me for years to do what they call an elimination diet. Elimination diet is where you go in, they take some blood out, they examine it, and they say, well, this might be a problem for you, and that might be a problem for you. So you can't eat any of those things for about three weeks, and then you reintroduce them. Well, for someone like me, you go through a test like that, and the doctor basically said, Gary, you can't eat anything you like to eat for three weeks. (laughs) I mean, this doesn't sound like too much fun. And then in the worst case of timing imaginable, I didn't really look at the calendar. It was during my birthday that I'm on this elimination diet. Now, I have this ritual on Father's Day and my birthday where I get to have guilt-free cake and ice cream. I know it makes me sound like a nine-year-old boy, but with the the sugar and the calories, but those two days, I always look forward to it. And I'm on this elimination diet over my birthday. Now, we had some friends that invited us over for dinner. She knew it was my birthday. She made the perfect chocolate cake with vanilla frosting, bluebell ice cream, and then I had to say, I I can't eat it, and I watched five people eat my cake and ice cream, (laughs) and I got to smell it, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm telling you, I just can't wait till this thing is over. I'm going to have cake, and and Lisa goes, you can't do that. I said, what what, what do you mean? It takes weeks, if not months, to get off an elimination diet. What, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you have to introduce foods one by one to see how your body reacts. For instance, you, you tested positive for cranberries, so the first day, we'll feed you cranberries, then we'll see what happens. I don't even like cranberries, right? <laughs> I eat cranberries to be polite at Thanksgiving. If I never ate another cranberry in my life, I wouldn't feel any poorer for it, right? I'm like, what doctor from hell thought up this diet. But, but here, here's the thinking. that There are certain foods, they're not going to send you to the hospital. They're not going to kill you. They might zap your energy. They might give you brain fog. They might stop you from sleeping. They might raise your anxiety level. So you just find out what those foods are and, and just avoid them. I, I get that medically. What I want to suggest spiritually is, what if the same thing is true of relationships, that maybe out of guilt or a misplaced sense of mission, you keep putting up with people that are making you spiritually sick, where you can't sleep. There's no peace. They make you, it, make it so difficult for you to think. And you think as a Christian, that's what you're supposed to do. I want to just raise the question, what what if it's not? What if Jesus himself modeled another way? Now to understand how we handle toxic people, I want to begin with what I think is a crucial mind change. This was revolutionary for me because I grew up thinking that being holy is primarily about not doing sinful things. It was a tradition a lot of you are familiar with, I'm holier than you, because I don't do more things than you don't do. And the holier you become, the more things you refuse to do. When you look at it biblically, being holy has far more emphasis on being set apart for glorious eternal things. You're not focused on what you don't do, you're focused on how God wants to use you to do positive things. Jesus spoke about going on the offense far more than he talked about playing defense. In fact, there's this curious prayer that he asked his disciples in Luke 10, chapter, Luke chapter 10, verse 2, when he says, I want you to pray for more workers. You think, well, why does Jesus need them to pray? Why doesn't he just answer the prayer? But, but he's laying his heart out to them. He's basically saying this, hey guys, There aren't enough of us. This work is so important. It's crucial. It has eternal impact and there aren't enough of us. And it is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus uttered it. That carry on the work of the kingdom. There aren't enough of us, which means... Those of us who are involved in kingdom work need to make the most of every one of our hours. If there aren't enough people, we can't afford to waste our lives away. So he tells them to go on the offense in Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then he really describes what a faithful life is. And this was shocking to me because it's not about you're faithful when you don't look at this and don't eat that and don't drink this or don't smoke that. Here's what he says is Giving glory to God, John fifteen eight. Read this with me. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. This is we bring glory to God with our life when we're bearing fruit. Fruitfulness matters. We live in a day and age where faithfulness is often defined by piety, avoiding sinful actions more than by fruitfulness doing good works. If I could talk to myself as a teenager, if there are any teenagers in here, I me just say, life changes when we realize God's got the best. I'm not saying we excuse it, but we don't focus on it. We're saying, God, how can you use me today to do good? And if we're created to be fruitful, if Jesus says fruitfulness matters, most of us will have to admit to be fruitful, if you have a tree that's fruitful, what do you have to do? You have to prune the tree because there's dead wood, It saps strength out of the tree and it doesn't produce as much fruit. What if the same thing is true for you socially? That to be most fruitful for the Lord, there might be some social branches that you need to cut off. I'm not saying we do it just for our comfort or because we don't want to be bothered. Let me be honest. I I pray to be bothered. Every day I'm asking God if there are these divine encounters, give me open eyes, open ears, that I can be available to be served. It's not about not wanting to be bothered. It's about wanting to be more effective. And I found if I'm not choosy about where I let myself be taken up with. I can become much less effective because I think one of Satan's most clever traps for well-meaning, sincere people that want to live out Matthew 6.33 is this. He knows he can't get us to not care. God makes us care. When God loves us, he pours his love into us. We want to love others. It's not just us. It's God working through us. We want to love, and there's nothing Satan can do to stop that, but here's what he can do if he can get us to take that love and pour it down a gutter, dealing with toxic people instead of irrigating a field where you'll create a lot of fruit, then at least he's kept us from being effective. And so walking away from toxic people is about being effective. So here's where we have to begin. You were saved for a mission. If I can help you walk away with anything I to say, if you are here in Christ, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Your life matters. If there aren't enough of us, if you don't step up, work that needs to get done won't get done. Your life matters, not just because of who you are. The power of the Holy Spirit within you, the work you're called to, your life matters and you need to make the most of it. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 6:33 the heart of the sermon on the mount, seek first the kingdom of God. And I want to stress he's not talking to seminary students. This isn't a lecture in a synagogue. He's talking to farmers and laborers and tradesmen and parents and grandparents and kids. It's not just a super serious that seek first God's kingdom. He says, no, I want you to seek first God's kingdom. And then he helps define what that is. What does it mean to be fruitful at the end of his life? In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he says, fruitfulness is known by this, investing in people. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, um, and you, are to look for people who want to know what Jesus commanded us and are eager to obey. We're investing ourselves in the lives of people who want to follow Jesus. Now, this is mirrored by Paul. Paul has his Sermon on the Mount in 2 Corinthians five fifteen when he says this, and he died for all. Why? So that we could go to heaven? It's not what Paul says. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's what a fruitful life does. We seek first God's kingdom. And then his great commission is 2 Timothy 2.2 where he talks about this is what that means. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So again, Paul says... Focus on a particular kind of person, somebody who's reliable. You pour into their life, you see fruit come up. They want to create fruit in other lives. So Jesus and Paul both agree. The focus of Christianity isn't on doing bad things. It's on investing in good people. It's not focusing on avoiding bad things. It's on investing In good people, Christianity is an endless, persistent, and sacrificial pursuit of investing in reliable people. So by extension, I don't have time left over. You don't have time left over to invest in toxic or unreliable people. Now, I keep using the word toxic, so let me just begin to define that a little bit. By toxic, I don't mean difficult. Difficult. Every toxic person is difficult, but not every difficult person is toxic. Some, they may just annoy me, and that doesn't make them toxic. I'm third of four kids, I'm not a type A. So often I'll find a real forceful personality, you know, the firstborn type. That just because they're different than me doesn't make them toxic. Toxic is different, toxic is someone who's taking little bits and pieces out of you. And if you keep interacting with them, there won't be much of you left to bless others. Let me give a general definition, then I'll get a little bit more specific. Toxic people are ruled by selfishness. It's always about them. And spite, they always have an issue with others. They're usually draining instead of encouraging. They use people instead of loving them. They're often seemingly addicted to self-righteous rash judgment and thus frequently fight with people instead of enjoying and appreciating people. In other words, they kind of rather have enemies than friends. They may be jealous of healthy people's peace, family, and friendships and spend much of their time and effort trying to bring people down to their level of misery Rather than blessing others with joy and encouragement, they often want to control you, and it may feel as if they basically just want you to stop being you. They're the kind of people where it is just you're exhausted and drained when you're with them, or you get a phone call or a text, and as soon as you see the number, boop, I mean, your blood pressure spikes, It's like, you know, you've had this toxic, but you're psychologically reacting just to the thought of interacting with them, just as I might have once to cranberries. Not that I'll ever know. I may never eat cranberries again. So if somebody is getting in the way of you being who God has called you to be and certainly doing what God has called you to do for you, that person is toxic. And I'm not going to go on a campaign against them, because like, some of you are gluten-free, some of you eat gluten, or are fine. I, I don't want to determine whether it's them or me, but just the interaction, it's not healthy for us, we, we just need to walk away from each other. And I found three frequent qualities of toxic people, you don't have to be all three to be toxic, but I found three things that are particularly true of a lot of toxic people. First is they tend to be very controlling. And this is why this is so important spiritually. Jesus said, What? Seek first, what? The kingdom of God. If I am your brother in Christ, then I have to say, I want you to seek what God wants you to seek. You must do what God has called you to do. A toxic person says, No, you will do what I want you to do. I will threaten you, I will cajole you, I'll pretend to be your friend. I'll I'll try to manipulate you, I'll bring others, but I have an agenda for you and you will do what I want you to do. You will stop saying this, you will start saying that, you'll be a part of this, you won't be a part of that. And that is so against God's plan with us. It's shocking to me, realizing how perfect and wonderful and healthy God is, and yet he doesn't control us. If anybody would control me, God, I think I'd be almost better, but that's not what he does. In the Old Testament, Joshua lays out the truth to the people of Israel. He says, choose you this day whom you will serve. For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Then you go to the book of Revelation and Jesus says, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. I'm not breaking down the door. I'm knocking. If you open the door, I'll come in and we'll have a good time. But you've got to open the door. And in the middle of the Bible, time after time after time, you see God's ministry is this. God speaks the truth. And he says, what are you going to do? He doesn't control. He says, this is the truth, but it's up to you. In the New Testament, Satan's not content with that. In fact, they talk about demonic possession in the Gospels. And you see it a little bit in the book of Acts. You say, I'm going to take over. Now, you don't ever hear about God possession, we're filled with the Spirit, but Paul says the Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. God doesn't take over. So if somebody's just trying to control you and take over, I'm not talking about appropriate, I'm not talking about parent young children out there, but they're trying to control you, then that is a toxic thing to do. I should be releasing you to seek first God's kingdom, not my kingdom or my wishes, Another thing that toxic people often do is they have a murderous spirit. I know it sounds hyperbolic, but, but, but look at their life. And there's this wide swath of destruction. They are mini Hurricane Harveys as they go along. They, they destroy small groups. They destroy office environments, They blow up family get-togethers, holidays, and reunions. And if you deal with them individually, they destroy your joy, Obliterate your peace, that gaslight you so you have no self confidence. You're not even sure what is true. And you just see everywhere they go, they bring destruction. This is the opposite of the God who brings life. The Bible begins with God creating, breathing, speaking life. Jesus describes himself I am the way, the truth, and the life. How does he describe Satan? The one who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. If somebody destroys office environments, churches, family gatherings, and your sense of sanity, we know where they're coming from. We know who they're following. A third thing that I've seen, and I just didn't get this for years, I didn't get how somebody enjoys this, but toxic people love to hate. They love to hate. It's their spiritual hunger. I'm one of the 15%. They've studied this. It's genetic. It's genetic who loves cilantro. Are there any other cilantro? Lo- Thank you. I, I, I call it the adolescent of herbs. Notice me, notice me, notice me. I mean, it tastes terrible to us. And I loved it. I was in Houston for 12 years. I love Tex-Mex and so many other chefs, they just throw cilantro into everything and, and just obliterate it because it just is, it wrecks a dish for me. Now, I know the problem is me. For 85% of you, you think it's delicious. So I, I understand. That's just, What we live with. What is delicious to you spiritually? And what is nauseous to you spiritually? If you are a healthy Christian, here's what is delicious to you. Colossians 3, 12, and 14. We are to clothe ourselves with compassion. Even if somebody is frustrating us, we want to hear the story behind what they're doing so that we can have compassion. Kindness. We don't want to hurt you. We get a spiritual kick out of doing something good for you. Buying shoes for somebody we've never met. Humility. We don't want to use you. We want to release you. We want to bless you. Gentleness. We know it's a harsh world. We want to add to that. And we will be patient. For a healthy Christian, that's spiritually delicious. That's who we want to be. That's what we aspire to. At the end of the day, if we've acted with those things, compassion, kindness, humility, patience, and gentleness, it's a good day. For a toxic person, that's a boring life. They live off of what Paul lists in Colossians 3, 8, and 9, when he lists anger, rage, Malice is ill will. It's the opposite of kindness. Slander. Instead of encouraging and blessing people, tearing them down. Filthy language to make people feel small. And lying rather than speaking the truth. And here's the thing. I I, I say this list and some people say, oh no, maybe I'm toxic. Let, Let me just say, there's a difference between toxic acts and toxic people. We all can be tempted into those things, toxic acts. In fact, I've worked with a mom. She has a son who's a drug addict. And she hears me talk about controlling. She realizes she's been controlling. She's not controlling with her son because she's toxic. She's scared out of her mind. Now, it's still not a good thing. You know you can't control an addict. It's not going to work. It's going to drive you crazy. It won't drive them into recovery. So she can recognize, okay, I can't be controlling. But, but I don't think she's a toxic person. But for a toxic person, they come alive when they're angry. That's when they have energy. That's what makes them want to get up. When they can rage, that's when they're excited about being alive. When they can slander and show malice online, it gives them more energy to get through. And, and so they never feel more alive than when they're at. They're worse. And it's just, it it really helped me when I was talking with married couples to realize sometimes, because I just didn't know why this would exist. I'll, I'll just use men. It could go either way. But some men, they don't want a healthy marriage. They like marriage because it's a platform for them to slowly destroy a woman's soul. It gives them a unique pedestal to tear somebody apart. Some people enter a church, they're not excited about worshiping God and seeing people set free and growing and loving each other. No, they want to be part of division, tear apart leadership or set people against each other, introduce controversies. Or in an office, it's not enough that we're making money and providing a good service. No, they want to be involved in intrigue and backbiting and slander. For them, it's boring to live a healthy life. They get off on being toxic and that's something i never understood and i was so naive because i would come face to face with one and i would feel so guilty what is it about me that's causing this it's like i could smell the spiritual bad breath right like somebody just had leeks onions garlic and gas station sushi right and they're close right up in your face and it just smells and you're just like oh god please heal my nose <laughs> It smells so bad, there must be something wrong with my nose. God, I don't want to sound insensitive or judgmental. And God would be saying, no, Gary, your nose works. Breath smells bad because breath is bad. You need to step back. And it can be that way with toxic people. And I always thought that sounded unchristian, that somehow my God's love for me would break through until, until I saw what Jesus did and heard what Jesus said. I've already quoted Matthew 6.33 two times. It is a verse I quote most often. It's a life verse of mine. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because I wake up. It sets my agenda. It's not about my joy, my enrichment, my happiness. How do I be used by God to build his kingdom? And my wife got tired one time. She says, you know, Gary, it's, it's possible to preach a sermon without quoting Matthew 6.33. I said, No, but it's difficult for me. But here's how blind we can be. I mean, it was just less than a decade ago where I really understood a verse that comes six verses after Matthew 6.33, and that's Matthew 7.6. Matthew 6.33, Jesus tells his followers, go on offense, seek first my kingdom, let's build, let's make fruit. But then he warns them that occasionally we have to play defense when he says this, don't give what is holy to dogs. Now he's speaking to Jews here. Let me just say, he's not talking about a nice golden retriever (laughs) or Cavalier King Charles that just, you know, loves on you. Jews didn't have dogs for pets. Egyptians did. You're talking about mangrigy, mongrels, yellow teeth salivating beasts. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Well, pigs in the Jewish culture, you know how that goes. Why, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What do you say? I don't want that to happen to you because you can have the truth. You need to know this. This is true. This is the gospel. This is the word spoken in love. It could be a perfect pearl. But a pig doesn't like a pearl. A pig doesn't recognize the value of a pearl. And so they'll trample them and then Tear you to pieces. And Jesus is saying, I I don't want that to happen to you. Now, I think Matthew 7, 6 is a Rorschach test where they put those ink blots up and you say, what do you see Uh, of the Christian life? If you think that holiness is always about being nice and getting along with people, you probably think that somebody slipped it in there. Jesus couldn't call people dogs. Jesus didn't refer, compare people to pigs. But if you think the Christian life is about being fruitful and bearing fruit, this is gold. This is Jesus. Thank you. I, I might have not played defense. I could have been hung up for years in unhealthy relationships that would ruin me. If we, the reason we need to know this is that Jesus says there aren't enough of us. Remember in World War II when stormed the beaches of Normandy. Right behind the soldiers were a whole cadre of battlefield surgeons. And they invented what we now call battlefield triage. And they would come up to a soldier and they had to make a quick decision Can this man be saved? And if they thought it would take me an hour to work on him and there's only a 10% chance that he will live, they made a terrible decision. They shot him up with morphine, painted an M on his chest so he didn't get another fatal dose, and they left him to die. Because they knew in that hour they might save 10 soldiers who could yet be saved. There weren't enough doctors. So they had to make triage choices. What if the same thing is true in spiritual warfare? There aren't enough of us that are seeking first God's kingdom. And so if we waste our time on on dogs and pigs, it's even uncomfortable for me to say that. I'm just quoting Jesus. Not only will they trample them, they'll they'll turn on us, they'll distract us, and a lot of work won't get done. This was Jesus's pattern, not just with toxic people. I think there's a very moving account where he's working with the rich young ruler. And one of the gospels, that's in all four gospels, by the way, a few stories that are in all four. So there's something about it in the early church that really hit him. And it said, Jesus, listen, it said, Jesus loved him something personal. Jesus saw him. There's a personal affinity. And then Jesus makes an incredible offer. He doesn't do this to hardly any other individuals after the disciples. He said, you want to be perfect? Come, give away all you have. And come follow me. He's inviting him into his inner sanctum, his inner circle. And the young man was rich. He said he went away very sad because he was very wealthy. It was too much. So what did Jesus do? He didn't chase after him. Hey, 100% sounds like God. Let's start at 50. Give away half of what We'll disciple you up. It says he turned to his disciples, the reliable men, and taught them. Here's why it's so difficult for the rich to embrace the kingdom of God. He didn't chase after him. He let him go. And there's another instance in, in Matthew 8 that shows this, where Jesus had delivered a man of demons, many demons. They asked to go into a herd of pigs. You've probably heard this story. When they do, the pigs run off a cliff and they all die. And the people are appalled. One, their livelihood has just gone over the cliff. They can have an immediate fire sale of pork chops and bacon. After that, they don't have anything to sell. But think of what they've just seen. They've just seen something they've never seen before. A man filled with demons, set free in his right mind. The kingdom of God coming in power and with miracles. It was in their midst. Jesus was there. I mean, I'm hearing what some of our friends are paying for a Taylor Swift concert. Imagine what you would pay to see Jesus in person, to hear him. To talk to, him. I'm whipping out my car, I don't care what it is. Get me a ticket. That's what they had. But they're so focused on the pigs. They pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. Matthew 8, um, it's the last verse, 34 or 38. They pleaded with Jesus 34 to leave their region. The very next verse tells us what Jesus did. Matthew 9:1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. He didn't argue with them. He didn't say, come on, look at what I did. And why are you raising pigs here? I mean, there there are a lot of issues where Jesus could go, but he just said, okay, if you don't want it, I'm leaving. And I always thought that if I had an interaction with someone and there wasn't repentance and there wasn't uh, reconciliation, it was a fault of my love. I didn't apply scripture right. I'm not surrendered to the Holy Spirit I don't believe that Jesus was ever lacking. And so when I counted up in part of the appendix in the book, When to Walk Away, 41 citations where Jesus chose to walk away, not always dealing with toxic people, but 41 times where Jesus chose to walk away or let someone else walk away, it changed my life. I realized that this can be a great strategy. It's not a failure. And Jesus taught it to his disciples in Matthew ten fourteen. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. Don't grab them around. Please, 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 please. You got to listen to me. Maybe this sermon will get through. Maybe this is the book. Maybe this is the talk. Jesus said, no, there's a time when you have to say, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm out of here. Goodbye. There will come a time, and I hope some of you will, when I'm praying for you before this, I always like it when God will give me an image and I can just picture the spirit cutting some chains that some of you have around your feet where he's saying, I'm not honored when you let yourself stay in a place where you are being ripped apart emotionally, spiritually, certainly physically, because you think that's what God wants you to do. In fact, I would say you might be causing God great grief. I've seen bosses put up with toxic employees. I've seen spouses put up with toxic. And here's what I've seen so often. When the person walks away, there are about a dozen people that rejoice. Finally, one mom that told me after her daughter finally got out of that just very toxic situation. I have my daughter back. She smiles again. I see her personality coming back. And if an earthly mom is saying that, what do you think your heavenly father is doing? A 17th century Puritan classic called The Christian in Complete Armor is written by William Grenall, And he said this to show this has been a long time. He said, it's easier to keep flies out of your pantry in the summer than to keep Satan's servants from stealing your joy and infecting your peace. Okay, this is 17th century no refrigeration, no Tupperware, no, hand, no, no plastic wrap or anything like that. You had food in the summer, flies were all over it. There was nothing you can do. And what Granol is saying is that's what Satan does with God's people. He sees these servants, they're having effective ministry. He's like, I can't stop them, but how do I distract them with my servants that will make them feel like they're going crazy, that will steal their joy, that will make them weak? Because the sensitive among you, and I love you for this, but I think this is God's, well, it seems selfish that I worry that this person is stealing my joy. Except, how does the Bible describe joy? The joy of the Lord is our strength. So if somebody's making you weak, you're not strong to help others. If somebody's destroying your peace, you're too agitated to think about others. If they are gaslighting you. When you know the truth and they're acting like you're wrong, you lose all self-confidence. Maybe I don't know anything. I, I can't speak to anybody. Man, I've just lost my mind. That's what they're doing to make you less than fruitful. And so just like some foods won't put me in the hospital, but I want an effective life, I've got to get rid of those foods. What if there are people, they're not going to put you in a mental hospital, but boy, they are making you weak. They're they're destroying your ministry. They're destroying your self-confidence. We need a sense of urgency, and I'll I'll end with this. During the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War, I mean, just this fierce conflict going back and forth. Robert E. Lee was there, and he had an important general, J.E.B. Stewart, Jeb Stewart, whose job was to be the scout. He was the eyes and ears that Lee depended on. Of course, they didn't have drones. They didn't have satellites. The only way they could know is if somebody who had seen what they saw was where the troops were moving and where they needed new troops would come in. And for almost two days, Jeb Stuart was missing. All the generals were frustrated. When he finally came back, he's in a one-on-one with Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee just said to him, it is the opinion of many generals in this army that you have let us down. We have been fighting blind, not knowing what to do. And you aren't here to tell us who is where. And Stuart said, who are those generals? And Lee slams his fist on the dead. We don't have time for this. I'm not going to let us get into squabbles, but I just want to make it clear, this will not happen again. So Stuart, so offended, started to unbuckle his sword. It's a sign of resignation. Since I have disappointed you. And Lee again slams his fist down and says, there is no time for this. Men are dying as we speak. How many and where will depend on the decisions we're about to make. No time for egos. Egos, No time for relational struggles. We've got to get the work done. And I want to say, the work of God's kingdom." is an eternal war. And it's fine for you to say, I don't have time to fight with you over this. I'm going to walk away. I don't have time to be so beaten up over a family gathering in Christmas that I'm not going to be worth anything until, I don't know, St. Patrick's Day. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to recognize that sometimes following in his footsteps is following a man who taught us and modeled to us that for the sake of fruitfulness, we may have to walk away. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for accepting us when we were toxic toward you, for giving us a mission, making our lives matter, but then giving us your directions. And we don't always read all of your word. And so I just pray, Lord, if there's somebody here that needed to hear that picture, I just see the spiritual (sighs) breaking apart of the chains. That some people, out of guilt or a misplaced sense of mission, would just be set free this morning to have a new fruitfulness, a new joy, a new strength, a new passion that we would invest in people that we would unselfishly give ourselves to your kingdom and to healthy relationships. That moms and dads would be set free to focus on their family, Lord, and to love each other and to love their kids. Employees could find healthy places to work. Father, we could honor you by the way we let our mission drive us. Make us fruitful, Lord, to honor you, we pray in Jesus' name.